Thank you, Jennifer, Julia, and Jacqueline, uh, reminding us of the old rugged cross and uh, how we're pointed to the cross often in Scripture. Thank you very much. What a, a sweet time in the Lord that was. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we would love to receive those from you. And I want to look at verse 18 this morning. We'll have four cross-references. I'll point you to them and would ask you to look them up with me at the appropriate time. But I want to talk to you this morning from this verse, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We have sung many times as a church family the song by Matt and Beth Redman, uh, blessed be your name. And in this song, we are reminded of Job's response in Job 2 after his many uh, devastating losses uh, where he said to, in that second chapter, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Redmonds in one of their stanzas, blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. There, though there's pain in the offering, Blessed be your name. This life is a road marked by suffering, isn't it? Joseph Parker, a British preacher in the 19th century, once said, there's a broken heart in every pew. Preach to the sorrowing and you will never lack for a congregation. The psalmist said that, um, that he, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds and we need to be reminded of that because there's no advertising strategy or campaign that tempts us to embrace daily suffering, that frames suffering in this light. As a culture, suffering is to be put off. It's to be avoided. Some people cannot even bear to talk of any discomfort in life at all. They can't have a conversation about any suffering at all. Now, something's wrong if, if that's all you talk about. You're an Eeyore. Don't do that. But you can't read the Psalms without a sense of, man, he's, they, David's got problems here. He's got sufferings here. Psalm 73, which we reference often, Asaph speaks about, it has not paid off for me to live a godly life. Look at the ungodly, how they're prospering. I've kept my hands clean in vain, Lord. And it wasn't until he went into the sanctuary of God that he saw their end and said, what a fool, what a brute beast I've been. There's no one on earth I desire but you, O Lord. You're the strength of my life and my portion forever. There's no advertising strategy. There's no educational curriculum that's going to say, you know, you need to be reminded that we live in a time of present suffering. If we didn't consult the Bible as the source of what we believe and how we're to live, we would be in the dark about how to process suffering. But the Bible's not silent about human trials. In fact, suffering is one of those unpopular promises found on the page of Scripture. How you and I process the suffering of our life is vital to our spiritual health and well-being and our witness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes actually, that blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. 
for some, when they hear something like that, maybe there's a discomfort even in your, in your ears and heart hearing something like that. That sounds masochistic. That, that sounds like someone who needs to be put away. But Jesus said, rejoice and be glad because you're living for a kingdom that is not of this world. And we tend to forget this. Sometimes we can be so caught in the patterns of life, you know, we actually like it here. Yeah, there's suffering, we acknowledge that, but I'm, I'm doing great today. When, when the world is all that it should be, <laughs> the blessed be his name, and when the road is marked by suffering, blessed be his name. Suffering is promised because it is the reality of living in a fallen world. Since Genesis 3 and sin entered the human experience, there's been suffering in this world in one form or another. And we turn to Romans 8 this morning, which presents great hope for those in Christ who face sufferings. Romans 8, this section, was written so that you would not be bewildered in your sufferings. Again, you may be on top of it this morning. Life has never been better. You've had windfalls. You just came from the doctor and your cholesterol was okay and all these markers in your blood are just fine. The world as it is as it should be. But be assured of this, suffering's coming. That's not negative, that's reality. Know this, God will never call us to deny reality. And reality is that we live in a kingdom that is passing away, a domain of darkness. But praise be to God for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us through his blood. And we come to Romans 8 and we see in verse 18 that we're to consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth even to compare for the glory that is to come. And Romans 8 is, is part of a, a section in Romans verses, or chapters 6 through 8, which is really a theology of the Christian life. It's a large section in the book, in the middle of the book, that gives the framework for the Christian life. Justification by faith. If my faith is in Jesus Christ, necessarily it leads to a life surrendered to him and to be walked in obedience before him. In this section, Romans 6 through 8, we, we don't find specifics on how to live the Christian life. That'll come later in chapters 12 through 15. But it does speak of the realities of the Christian life. And in fact, in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8, it really speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that it would be impossible for you or me or anyone to live the Christian life apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So let's just lay out the whole package for a moment. If you're here today and you're without saving faith in Jesus Christ, the offer of the gospel is extended to you this day, that if you would turn from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. He will come to you. And by faith in him, you will be a child of God. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And you begin a walk of faith with him, where you are committed to obey everything that he has said. And you follow him in believer's baptism. By the way, if you're a believer and haven't been baptized, what's the problem? You act like that's negotiable? 
Nothing could be more clear than the obedience of baptism. That's the first act of obedience. A true believer doesn't say, well, I don't think that's really reasonable. I don't want to get my hair wet or, you know, it seems like a hassle. We're talking about the Lord. So first step, obedience. Professing to this world, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I want everyone to know it. And the picture of me being buried with him and raised with him to walk in newness of life, that's a picture of how he's changed me. I am his and he is mine. And I'm going to live my life to declare the excellencies of his salvation and redemption in my life. And so I begin to live the Christian life and I look to his word and I get involved in a local church where I can learn more about the Bible and people are serious about their walk with God. And perfect, no, but where I need to be to grow. And I begin to surrender to him and listen to him. And the Holy Spirit is dwelling within me because if I don't have the Holy Spirit, verse 9 says, I don't belong to Christ. So the Spirit that regenerated me, the Spirit that draws, drew me to the Lord, the Spirit that dwells within me to give me power to overcome sin and to live for Jesus Christ, I'm going to live for him. And that's what Romans 8 is all about, the Spirit-filled life. It, it, it says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that what? I'm a child of God. <laughs> it's the Spirit of God within me that bears witness with my spirit. Yes, I've repented of my sins. Yes, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ, my Lord. I am his. He is mine. I'm a child of God. The Spirit of God bears witness of that assurance. Do you have that assurance? The text says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. I have an inheritance in Christ. Yes, I, I, I share in his sufferings, not to pay for my sins in the least bit, but a part of living for him in this world, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. My life is not a, my own. I've been bought with a price. If you would receive Jesus Christ today, receive him for who he is. He's God's son. If you would receive Jesus Christ today, receive him on his terms. Acknowledge and repent and believe and follow him. This response of, and gift of faith and repentance is really the beginning of a life surrendered to his authority. But verse 18 says that I need, for I consider, Paul says, I, I consider this suffering. It continues the suffering of verse 17. Yes, we are sufferers and heirs of Christ. And then Paul says, let me take a minute and just consider this with me, that the sufferings of this present time, this verse helps us when we're tempted to ask, what's wrong with me? All these things are going wrong. This verse is given so that you won't be bewildered by suffering. Nobody wants it. It's not something we're longing to do, but be assured it's coming. God has a higher purpose in our suffering. Identified with Christ, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was the subject of suffering, mistreatment. We're bonded with him in that way. And this weans us off of this world and its offerings. And we set our mind on things above. So would you look at Verse 18 with me this morning, and I want to unpack it in four ways. First, let's do the math on groaning and glory. 
Let's do the math on groaning and glory. When Paul says, for I consider, that is a rich word. Um, It's logizomai. Fifteen times it's used in the book of Romans alone. You can hear that we get the English from it, logizomai, logarithm. It's, It's a word, it's an accountant's term, it's a mathematical term of mathematical calculation. Donald Gray Barnhouse in his um, classic commentary wrote, a shrewd observation, a, a proper deduction, a thoughtful estimate, a studied conclusion, a careful reckoning. That's what Paul's driving at here. For I consider in that way. So it's not a lighthearted thing. It's a very serious evaluation. When I consider the sufferings, plural, sufferings of this present time. Think about this carefully and let it change your life. Let this word deepen your faith and your walk with Christ this morning. My present sufferings, again, plural, whatever they may be are not worth, they're not worth to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. The danger of much teaching in the evangelical world is an over-realized eschatology, which is a 50-cent word, which means that all the rewards of heaven should be now. That's over-realized. Yes, we have joy. Yes, we have answered prayer. Yes, we have the wonders, the riches, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ now. But the ultimate reward in the kingdom is not yet. And so the error of much charismatic word of faith teaching is that you get all the goodies now. And so it puts all the teaching off. And so if you're, su- no, we don't talk about suffering here. Is the ought to be the banner over, over their church. There's no such thing as suffering. If suffering, something's wrong with you. You're, you're, you're not right with the Lord. You don't have enough faith. Just claim it, name it, and claim it. Create by the things that you speak. Well, excuse me, only God is able to speak and it happens. And it abounds. A distorted view of God, salvation that is on shaky ground, that's not always clear that it's through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Rather, salvation is a self-generated mystical experience which involves channeling God's power for personal wealth, happiness, and success. Hank Hanegraaff rightly calls prosperity preachers' use of the Bible script torture the twisting of scripture for one's own personal wealth. That is not how we should understand it. We are not home yet, friends. But I'm wanting you to see what Paul is saying because he's holding up the scales this morning. Would you hear Paul through this word holding up the scales of this present suffering and the eternal way to glory and there's no weighing them out? This present suffering doesn't even begin to compare with the eternal weight of glory for those in Christ Jesus. If you're suffering now, would you bring that in? I'm not minimizing your trials, your struggles, your sorrows, the sleepless nights. We're not minimizing that. But would you allow this to enter your mind and your heart? That it doesn't compare with what God has for you. Eye has not seen, neither ear heard, 
Neither entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This is incredible. He's holding out these scales, measuring one against the other. There is no comparison with what the Lord has prepared for those who fear him. And what does he mean by glory? We're going to see this as we walk through this paragraph in the coming weeks. This glory, this future glory. Heaven is often spoken of as glory. God is there. The weight of God is there. The manifest presence of God is there. Sufferings are real. They're painful. They're tearful. They bring sleepless nights. They bring knots to our stomach. Uh, They're deeply personal. They are inconsequential, is basically what he's saying, in light of what God has. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm having a hard time getting my mind around it. I understand that. Let the truth of the statement sink in. And how does this change your life? You believe it. You believe it. Do you believe you have an inheritance yet to come? I think the Christian life is one experience after another where God is saying, this world is not all there is. This world is not all there is. I have much for you. It will be revealed in time. We are given this word for a reason, and that is to give us perspective in a world that is marked by suffering. Sufferings. The future glory is heavy. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Let not your heart be troubled. In marriage sufferings and work trials and children heartbreaks and physical ailments, we tend to focus on our sufferings and only glance at future glory. Would we allow verse 18 to lift our head to see what God has said to us. Present sufferings are light compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now I have several cross-references that I want you to see this morning, and I'm gonna ask you to turn to these sections, uh, passages. The first is 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Jared read it for us earlier. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians And he says, for this light momentary affliction, Paul's writing this, this light momentary affliction is prepared for us in eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing, they're temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal So in this section, he speaks in verse 8 that he's afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He's perplexed, but not overwhelmed. He's always carrying in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, he's constantly delivered over. Verse 16, therefore, do not lose heart. And then 17, for this light momentary affliction. Now, sometimes when you hear that, and if you're in an affliction now, if you're in a category 5 trial in your life, that may not even penetrate your heart right now. You might be just dismissive. Well, that's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. That's not me. Uh, because what I'm facing right now is not a light momentary affliction as I view it. 
So I think it's sometimes when you hear something like that, you want to consider the source, right? Is he qualified to make such a statement? Which leads us to our second cross-reference, which is 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And in this um, chapter, he talks about his afflictions. And I want to, for some, this will be your first greeting with this, your first exposure to this, rather. For others, you've heard this before, but he says in verse 23, are there servants of Christ? I, I'm a better one. I, I am talking like a madman with great, far greater labors, far more imprisonment. So he says, you know, this is part of the afflictions I've suffered. I've been in prison. How about you? With countless beatings um, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, so the Jews had an ordinance that you couldn't be whipped um, you, over 40 times, which was viewed as the margin of death, so they subtracted one to avoid issuing, you know, the ultimate capital punishment. 39 lashes, um, 39 would take you to the edge of death, but you could not find escape from your pain. I think of Acts 16 where Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, which is what he talks about next. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I, I was adrift at sea. On what? Probably a log or some kind of wreckage from a ship bobbing like a cork. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. He faced schemes and plots against him. For the times maybe in your life where somebody was coming after you and that feeling of intimidation, he felt that all the time. And so when I think about Paul, not only did he physically suffer often without food and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure, but he had the stress of all the churches, he says in verse 28. So when Paul says in chapter 4, these light momentary afflictions that carries some weight with me from a man who's been through that. Does it for you? That whatever we may face, we can take courage. We all have an appointment with suffering. And Paul urges us to do the math. Do the math. Consider the groaning of this present time with the glory. It's not even worth to be compared to the glory that is to come. How does that become a thrill to your soul. You believe it by faith. That's not a blind leap in the dark. What that is is a transaction saying, my faith rests in God's promises for me and he will see me through. Notice secondly, suffering, sufferings are to be expected. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, this age, until the end, there will be sufferings. What, what are the sufferings of this present time. Well, those common to every man and woman, as of this morning's Google search, there's 8.1 billion people who live on the earth. And we all share that in common, in one form or another. Physical, physical sufferings, disease, accidents, catastrophes, persecution, mental anguish, fear, seeing loved ones suffer, 
spiritual sufferings. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you, you're saved from the dominion of darkness, but you have new problems. You become burdened for things that you once were, didn't have any concern for at all. There's spiritual pressures. You follow him, yes, forgiveness, yes, deliverance from sin, yes, joy overflowing. But in this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. Be of, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. New sets of temptations, new battles with sin, spiritual warfare, so that we're called to put on the full armor of God. Believers in Jesus are not immune from cancer. We're not immune from painful death. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not guaranteed that my last hours, my last days in this world are going to be pain-free. I don't. Early in my ministry, and I've seen saints, God's people, brothers and sisters die through the years. I remember early in my pastorate being in the um, ICU unit and there with um, this um, uh, wife, uh, and she was there with, with her husband who was on the, um, on the machines, and I was there as, as the, the cadence to his heart just went straight-lined, and he passed peacefully. Early in my ministry, there was a beloved brother in the body who was loved by old and young alike, and he experienced a devastating stroke. I went to the hospital, hospital to see him, and the stroke had so mangled his face, I didn't recognize the dear brother. I didn't. And he died shortly thereafter. John Piper speaks realistically from his pastoral experience. He says, I've seen the most seasoned and faithful saints suffer in ways I dread. One of the great old prayer warriors, as they used to be called in our church, her name was Ruth, had, a horrible, had horrible hallucinations of lewd figures dancing around her bed as her tongue dried up in her mouth and turned almost black as she pleaded with me for the Lord to take her. And there was the young mother of four who in her last half hour with cancer did not die peacefully. She was racked with pain that she convulsed with vomiting and died in the smell and the mess of it all. And there was the infant born with his liver outside his body, swaddled in a blanket. He looked perfectly normal. He lived about nine hours. Those illustrations of the horrors of death took place under the best medical care with as much palliative help as possible. Multiply those deaths a million times over every year, only in most cases with no medical relief in the poorest places on earth. Unlike most of those deaths, the deaths of my friends were deaths in hope. They were believers. They had profound confidence in Christ that they would see him face to face. The terrors were mainly of dying, not death. But for millions every year, this is not the case. Their suffering leads to even a worse suffering forever. Only if we keep such appalling reality in mind will the misery in this world and the love of Christ who endured it for sinners become part of our wisdom, brokenness, healing, and courage. So this isn't a rosy take on suffering. 
This isn't the Disneyland that's often presented through advertising. We know this is true. And Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits those in Christ Jesus. There is no true Christianity without cross-bearing and daily dying to self. The believer in Jesus Christ is not only an heir of his kingdom, but we also are an heir to his sufferings. In Job chapter 5, verses 5 through, excuse me, verses 6 through 7, Eliphaz, one of Job's bad friends, let's just say what it is. He's a, he and his cohort were awful friends. They talked uh, about God, but they never talked to God on behalf of Job. And Eliphaz, in the midst of his blovating, uh, said something true. He said, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward from, from a fire. And that is true indeed. Notice with me thirdly, sufferings are shared with Christ. The sufferings we face, Christ has pledged his presence because of our union with him, by faith in him, because we are in Christ. We are united with him and he with us. Now, third main cross-reference is Acts 7. Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. Here is Stephen. Stephen has just given an airtight message to the Jewish leadership on all the periods of Israel's history where they had resisted God and in an unbelief and God's judgment came. And so when he finished giving them a Sunday school lesson, they weren't really happy with the message. And it says in verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Stephen, gazing into heaven, after giving a defense of the leadership of Israel, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'll come back to that. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, but they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears like kindergartners and rushed at, at, at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their, down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So in the course of Stephen's stoning, we read elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus ascended into heaven and he's been seated at the right hand of the throne of God meaning that his redemptive work through his sinless life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection has been finished. There will never be another Savior. There will never be another hope for a sinful humanity. Christ ascended into heaven. He who came from heaven ascended into heaven after his resurrection and is coming back again. 
And it says in Hebrews 1 that he's seated. But here with Stephen, what's Jesus Christ doing? He's standing. What, what do you think that communicates? I think that it communicates, I'm with you, Stephen. I'm with you. I care. And this is not in vain. I'm standing. My faithful servant is suffering. I'm standing. I'm interceding. It's not in vain. We're called to follow Christ when cancer comes. We're called to faithfulness to Christ when friends forsake us. We're called to draw near to Him when trials and pressures come. When you and I follow Christ and it costs us for our allegiance to Him, when we get mud on our jersey and blood on our face, we've got skin in the game, He has pledged to meet us there. So let's not hold back. Let's not hold back this week, church. In the conversations, Lord, give me the courage to speak for you. When I'm having my conversations, when you bring people across, give me eyes to see ways that I can minister and serve. Give me what is needed. When you and I follow Christ and it costs us for our allegiance to him, he's pledged to be with us. The unsaved, those without the saving grace of Christ do not have any fellowship in their sufferings. So maybe you're thinking, I don't like all this talk about suffering. That, you know, somebody told me that that wouldn't happen if I was a Christian. They lied to you. But you're going to suffer whether you're a believer in Christ or not in this world. And if you're without Christ, you have no fellowship with him in the course of your suffering. And maybe you would say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. That just shows the depth of your depravity and how you don't understand salvation. He is with us to have fellowship with him. It's an amazing thing. I've mentioned this to you on occasion. One of the, one of the hardest assignments as a pastor is to be called to the funeral home with a family who does not know Christ And why have they called a pastor? Well, they need someone to help them. We know, you know, we need to have a service. What does that look like? And to sit around the table with adult children, with a father who's died, and they ransack collective memory to try to find meaning in that moment. Oh, friends, that's, that's a hopeless situation. Well, daddy kept a good garden. He made an awesome gumbo. We're talking about life or death here. I'm not belittling shared memories. I have them too. We cherish them. But we're talking about life or death here. We're talking about eternity here. Where are you going? Who are you living for? And the only answer that is substantiated in Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And if I don't know him, I'm lost. And if I don't know him, I enter my sufferings alone. And some, some are good at, you know, a good stiff upper lip, good at bowing back. But for how long? Human strength is not very overwhelming. It's not, it's not very impressive. 
because we all die. We all get old. We all perish without Christ. Let me share a, maybe a story that helps you to identify a little closer with this fellowship. And maybe you've gone through sufferings and it's the fellowship of God's presence with you in Christ himself who, is, who has comforted you. Well, this happened to John Patton in 1858. He was a Scottish missionary. What an incredible story. I think he was one of 11 children. And his dad was a prayer warrior who had entered into the closet praying that his children would honor the Lord. And there was a call on John's life where he was leaving England and was going to be sailing to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And that, that this moving story of his father watching over the hill as his son makes his way to the boat. John Patton and his wife sailed for the New Hebrides Islands and upon arrival, the Pattons rejoiced in the coming of a baby son to gladden their home. But the joy was short-lived as both his wife and child died. Dr. Patton had to dig their graves with his own hands and bury his loved ones. In writing of this experience, he testified if, I had not, if it had not been for Jesus and the fellowship and grace he afforded me, I am certain I would have gone mad. Or died of grief beside their lonely graves. If it weren't for Jesus and his fellowship with me in that darkest of moments, I would have gone mad. And we can search through the rest of Scripture. He heals all our diseases. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, I have wounded and it is I who heal. In 2 Chronicles 7, it speaks of the healing of the nations for those who turn to him. The psalmist said in Psalm 41, heal my soul for I have sinned. I will heal your faithlessness. Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord, and on it goes. So let's close with, fourthly, sufferings are a call to draw near to God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. There's a drawing here that I hope we'll hear uh, clearly, that we'll receive clearly. And this leads me to this, the fourth cross-reference, and that's Psalm 4. Psalm 4. This is a Psalm of David. And David's suffering. Maybe you're saying, what's new? Well, this was quite a painful experience because the context of Psalm, Psalm 3 and 4 appears to be David hiding from his son Absalom. And if you read that in 2 Samuel, it's a horrible story of how Absalom stole the hearts of Israel and in pride and hubris um, uh, sought to overthrow his father. And here in Psalm 4... We see David crying out, answer me when I call you, O God of my righteousness. And here's what I would say in our sufferings. Here is what I would say in our trials, that this is where we need to go. And it's often the place we resist to go. And that is in the presence of God. David says, hear me, answer me when I call, O Lord. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
And here he's talking about how can I be joyful when I'm hiding in a cave and my son is pursuing to kill me. But his joy isn't on his circumstances. It's not. His joy is not in his circumstances. He closes with this in verse 7. It's worth a, a full exposition, but I just want to hold this up to you. That in the midst of these trying circumstances, he says in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. When the pantry's full and the bank account's full, you've put more joy in my heart even though my situation is really difficult. Paul Tripp writes, if, you, if your joy is circumstantial, if it is relational, if it's work-related or material, when hardship in those areas come, you will then experience a loss of your joy and with it you will lose motivation to continue. What a challenge, true security. So as David's thinking about being in that cave, would you notice as he reflects on God's provision for him, God's joy in his heart, even though he's facing great calamity, he basically says in verse eight, I'm just gonna go to bed. I'm just going to bed. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's true security. What a, what a message that is. And so we, we close with this. If we put on the scales of true and lasting values, the sufferings endured in this life are light indeed compared with the splendor of the life to come. Oh, I pray that we would look there. We don't look there enough. Would you agree? So how do I know that I could go there? How do I know that I, Christ would be with me? And that really calls us to the gospel, that God has acted once and for all in history through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And the call for men and women everywhere is to repent and believe on him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who has pledged to stand with you and be with you. His death on the cross pays for your sin, that you might be reconciled to God and forgiven of every one of them, and that you're standing with God, not based on your merit, but on the merit of Christ. Your standing with God is secure. And then follow him, obey him, seek his word, be involved in a local church where you can hear the Bible taught and you can know other Christians. One of the titles of the Lord Jesus in the Bible is that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept at the grave of a friend he was acquainted with sufferings. He grieved at the unbelief of many. And yet one of his greatest evangelistic invitations comes from the Gospel of Matthew where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to him in the open arms of faith. Lord, all I am and hope to be, I surrender to you. Would you bow with me in prayer as we come to the close of this service? Every time we preach the word of God, it's a call for a decision. We, we will either obey or disobey. We will either trust and obey or opt for one of the many ways unbelief manifests itself in our life. It could be apathy. It could be cynicism. It could be rebellion. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he is near. Can you think of 
any more time than with open Bible and listening to the claims of the gospel that he would be nearer than that? Seek the Lord while he may be found. The sovereign authority of God operates through the preaching of his word. The authority of God comes from his word. And may it produce obedience in your life and in mine. Father, as we come to the close of this service, we want to come in the open arms of faith. For those who need Christ, would you move in them and through them? For those who are dealing with sufferings right now that are pronounced and difficult and maybe gone on for a long time, would you give them hope? Thank you for the joy that you give to us. Thank you for the promise that you'll be with us. May we close this service in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.